This is the Steelers Standard on Steelers Nation Radio and Podcast on Steelers.com. Tom Offerman and Jacob Brecht with you here on another edition of the Steelers Standard. The Steelers are in the midst of their bye week. Very important for NFL players. Rest up. Get this extra week to heal the body, and hopefully the team can get a little healthier. Since there is no game on Sunday, though, this is probably a good time to step back and just take a good look at the state of the Pittsburgh Steelers six games into their season as we approach the halfway point of 2021. Man, football season always just flies by. I can't believe we're already at week seven. I was the exact same thing. You know, the weather is getting colder, and in the blink of an eye, you're already in week seven. I can't believe it. It it always seems to go this way. And Which then, essentially means the halfway point is right around the corner. We essentially are going to blink, and it's going to be week 15, and then we're going to blink again, and it's going to be the Super Bowl. So it, it comes fast. Best time of the year, in my mind, for sports. Especially because the NFL, I think, is the best sport, but... Anyway, good chance now to step back and kind of look at a whole grand scope of things for the Steelers. And I want to start with the defense, and I want to start with a debate that's been kind of going around town. If this defense is, in fact, truly an elite unit, or does it simply just have a couple of elite players on it? And I think the answer is a little bit of both. I think um, think it's an elite unit when it's fully healthy, and I think that's the main reason you've seen them struggle, especially stopping the run later in football games is the health is just not there for them. Well, I think the healthiest you've seen this team was in week one. Yes. Because you had Tyson Aluelo available to you, and the only guy really missing was Stefan Tuitt. Which we might be prepared to go a whole year without anyway. So I guess so. And so you saw what that defense was capable of doing with at least 10 of your expected 11 starters on the field, and that was with a not-as-of-yet subpar performance from Minka Fitzpatrick. Right. So I think it's very fair to say that this defense, when firing on all cylinders, is an elite defense. However, the the narrative for the 2020 season, or 2021, rather, season has been, it has been an elite defense in the past, but this year it's being held up by its true elite players, and it's not even being held up by all of its elite players, really just two guys, and that's T.J. Watt and that's Cam Hayward. I think the there's only I think there's only really three truly elite superstars on the defense. Hayward, when healthy, when healthy, that's that's healthy right now because I think two it does jump into that category. But two it aside, Hayward, Watt, and supposed to be Minka. I think those are your big three. So those are your for sure superstars. You can't even say healthy because Minka is healthy. So what do you, what's the I, what's I just the right word I just to meant I, I maybe not healthy. I meant. I just said three because I'm not thinking of to it because he's out of sight, out of mind, kind of. And then I corrected myself because it really is closer to four when he is on the field. But at what we've seen this year so far, it's really those three that I think are capable of making it to that elite level, or at least those three that you expect to be at that mm-hmm. elite level. Because there's guys like Devin Bush that you think could get there eventually. And I think we've all been waiting for, De- uh, for Terrell Edmonds to get there for the past couple of years. But the three that you expected to be there all year, only two of those three have really gotten to that point. And it's not like Minka's been a bum and you're sitting there thinking about benching Minka or anything like that. But he certainly left a lot to be desired with his level of play. And even though he's not making 
you know, the turnovers like he had in the prior two seasons, hasn't had an interception and in, I think it's like 13 games now. It's not just the fact that he's missing the big play. He's missing making the little plays, too. Uh, I know he led the team in tackles against Seattle on Sunday with seven. That could have easily been 11 or 12 if he would have been more disciplined in his tackling. But the missed tackles have been a big problem for him, and you love all the splash that he can bring to the table, but when that dries up and he's not making the routine plays Mm -hmm. as routinely as he should... I don't want to say that you're starting to question Minka Fitzpatrick, but you're starting to get a little antsy for him to break out in 2021. And last week for Seattle, I said maybe this is the week because Geno Smith, you know, he can be a little erratic with the football. I think the week prior before that, I said, you know, we didn't know if it was going to be Drew Locke or Teddy Bridgewater, but I said either or. You probably need to be able to force a turnover, make a big play for Minka. Just still waiting for it. Maybe that bye week is huge for him. He can kind of reset the batteries, okay. almost hit that reset button on his season, and come out against Cleveland and have a pick six like he did last year against Baker. But I was just going to go in that direction. It just doesn't look like it's going to trend that way. Hopefully he can wake up, though. The upsetting thing is that game against Cleveland came in, what, week five? Yeah. And... At the time, people were saying, well, Mika's been making plays. He has been making game-changing plays. Yeah, I remember Billy's call was like, everybody's been asking where Where's that man Minka? is. Well, there he is, Baker or Baker found, found him. Right. So he did this last year, too, kind of. He did away. it, but it, 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 that splash play came in week five, and now we won't have the opportunity to see Mika make a splash play until week eight. Potentially week eight. He right, and, that, and it, that's yeah. the earliest possible week. Also, that's, that's that's nearly a month long difference. Also, I think last year's criticism was more targeted towards just the takeaways and the turnovers and the splash plays. He was making the routine plays last year. He wasn't missing the tackles that he is this year. He's so that's why I think it's a little this year. more eye opening his performance this year. Because not only are you not making the splash plays that you know he's capable of because of his performance in the past, but he's taking even a larger step back by not making routine plays that even guys. And a tier or two below him can can make. Now, now, the Steelers' defense on paper heading into this season, uh, we all said, might be better than last year's. And last year's unit, one of the best in football. Well, we were looking at it with the Ingram addition. And, yeah, there was a little bit of stretching on our part with the secondary. You know, we had to put a lot of faith in guys like Pierre and Sutton. But we said, you know, this could be a better defense than it is last year. Now fast forward to this point. And, of course, injuries are a huge factor in this. But statistically, they're worse than almost every single category than last year. And it's not just a little bit worse. Yeah, they're a lot worse, especially worse. in the takeaway, takeaways category. Yeah, I, mean, I think they only have one interception on the year. They only have a handful of forced fumbles. They're all T.J. Watt, pretty much. I too. think except for the Chris Warman one, yeah, they're all T.J. Watt. Watt yeah. yeah. So they're definitely not playing that sack the quarterback, take the ball away style of Steelers football. The sacks are they still okay. They got five sacks, which I think is something you called um, I did last say they'd week. get five. You said they get at least five. The and sacks. So good to see that they took advantage of that for Seattle. The sacks have been lagging what they're used to being at, but they're definitely not in dire straits there. Uh, that's still a pretty successful sacking mm-hmm. the quarterback defense. One thing you'd think they would try to do a little bit more of is blitzing. They still seem to just not want to blitz much after their success rushing only four against Buffalo. But, hey, you were healthy as you've been against Buffalo. Maybe you can only rush four when you're healthy, but I, I think you need to bring some more pressure, bring the pain with some blitzes moving forward if you're not going to have to it, if you're not going to have Alu-Alu. 
But, you know, uh, other than the sacks, which are, which are still not where they used to be but are still pretty good, you know, they, the run defense has been pretty suspect, especially late in football games. Mm-hmm. Teams seem to be able to run the ball against them later in the game, which is a problem. And uh, I, the big one is, of course, those takeaways. Only having that one interception, a handful of strip sacks or, or f- of forced fumbles. It, it, it's concerning because Tomlin speaks about splash constantly and, and, that and making the big splash play, and when you have an offense as incapable as yours, you need the splash plays. You need the defense to force turnovers and give you very favorable field position, and they just haven't done that really at all this year. No, not at all, and that's why when you talk about the comparison between this year's defense and last year's defense, and before the year started, we were saying on paper, this team does look better than it did last year and really quickly you you talked about the secondary maybe we were sh- going for a little reach there but I think it's fair to say that the secondary is playing okay this year I mean I think of everything that that's really not my greatest concern because guys like Cam Sutton especially James Pierre and surprisingly enough Trey Norwood have stepped up to fill in the holes left by Mike Hilton and Steve Nelson so Secondary isn't my greatest concern because <clears throat> even though it's not as good of a pass defense, it's it's still capable of slowing a team down. I mean, to slow down Josh Allen, to slow down Aaron Rodgers, obviously they did a good job of containing Russell Wilson for majority of the game on Sunday night. I think they've proven they can do a decent enough job. Now, we've seen the splash plays come against them, but still... Right now, my focus is more on the front seven rather than the back four. But yet, the fact that they were basically top three, Tom, in yards against total, pass yards against, rush yards against, sacks, turnovers, inter- total turnovers, interceptions, um, uh, forced fumbles, everything. They were top three, if not at worst, top four in every single one of those categories. It's not that the, it's not like they're hovering around seven, eight, nine, maybe even ten. They're hovering around like sixteen, seventeen. For turnovers, I think they're hovering around like twenty-five. For interceptions, they're probably at like thirtieth. They're twenty-sixth in the league in takeaways. They have five total takeaways, two interceptions, three fumbles. They're yeah, I mean, right in the middle of the pack for every other category. They're like I said, they're, 12th. they're probably hovering around sixteen. You're a little bad. You're a little off on that. You're giving them a little less credit than they deserve. Right. They're eleventh in passing defense. They're twelfth in rushing defense. That's still a significant they're, drop off from when you were top in total defense. When you were top three in basically every single one of those categories last year. If you're outside the top ten, that is concerning. Yeah, it is. In, in the course of just one year, you made that big of a drop from the top of the league. That's concerning. It's it is extremely concerning. I mean, this is a defense that needed to to lead the the way for the Pittsburgh Steelers. It's just not happening. I mean, Mm-mm. especially when you look at you know. By the way, they are ninth as far as sacks are concerned with 15 total sacks this year, and they're only six sacks away from the Bears at the top. So they could definitely still lead the league in sacks this year. Uh, But, you know, there's been several occasions now where the offense has put the quote-unquote dagger, if you will, into the other team, and then they've handed the the baton off to the defense and said, okay, defense, one, three and out, and this ballgame is over, and... 
that's you know for years with Ben Roethlisberger, once he really entered his prime after the you know rookie years where the defense really carried the day for those teams. Um, the offense was always the one that iced the game. Well, now it's the defense that needs to ice the game, and they had a chance to prove that they could against the Seahawks in a backup quarterback mm. after Ben drove the Steelers down the field, overcame a Chase Claypool offensive pass interference play, or more accurately say Najee Harris overcame a Chase Claypool pass interference play. Ben sets him up in position to kick a makeable field goal for Boswell, who nails it 52 yards. And that's the game. 47 seconds left, no right. timeouts, you're up by three. That should be ball game. All it really takes is one good defensive play, tackle for loss, sacks, tackle inbounds after only a handful of yards gain. And you're pretty much icing that thing. And it was methodical the way that the Seahawks were able to go down the field and get into field goal range to the point where they were so close to field goal range that you weren't so sure that they weren't going to be able to take a couple shots at the end zone and get a nice little win on regulation there. So, And I'll go yeah. one further. I mean, yes, that was concerning, but the fact that you had a lead before that and that yeah, you one, blew You blew several leads, yeah. You blew, you blew several leads, but, I mean, the one we were talking about missed tackles, it was, I think, on their second touchdown drive, that, like, 47-yard touch or pass play to their tight end who just broke, I think, four tackles on his way all the way down to the one-yard line. I mean, yeah, you had several chances to put that game away, and you just didn't. And it showed in uh, just the the yards allowed and, as we mentioned, the broken tackles. 14 to nothing, you blew that lead. Then you go up 17 to 14, you blow that lead. Then you go up 20 to 17, you blow that lead. Who knows, you might have blown the 23 to 20 lead if they didn't just end the game there because of the rules of overtime. So... Anytime, the, anytime that this Steelers offense, at least this is what the expectation was, and maybe it shouldn't be anymore, but it definitely was heading into the year. If the offense is up 14 and nothing at halftime, game's over. Like That's exactly what mm-hmm. people were expecting this Steelers defense to be heading into this season, that if you're up 14 to nothing, yeah, you might give up 14 points, but you'd assume you'd at least get to 20, 23 as an offense if you had 14 at halftime. And you'd think that'd be good enough to win this football game. And as you clearly saw against Seattle, it absolutely was not enough. And that's, I think, a definite concern because it wasn't like the Steelers' offense were the Chiefs or the Bills in that first half, putting up 30 points and a half. But 14 points and a half and being up 14 nothing is about as Chiefs or Bills as it gets for this kind of an offense. So... With the offense performing at maybe its best that it possibly can, within a, within t- a half, to turn around, especially in that first possession from Seattle, and let them just march right down your throats mm-hmm. into the end zone, all running plays pretty much with Alex Collins. I mean, that's deflating for the offense. That's deflating for the whole team, and it's deflating for the fan base who is entering this year knowing there's so much on the defense and. I don't know if I can say they've truly fallen flat on their face, but I can say that they haven't delivered either. They haven't delivered, Tom. I I don't think there's any way, way around it. That the being only, said, the only they've... time they've really delivered was against Buffalo because we saw what happened at the end of the Denver game and we saw what happened at the end of Sunday Night Football against Seattle. I don't want to sound like an ass, but I don't think it's really a defensive unit delivering in both of those games. It's two guys. It's Hayward and Watt. Right, but... That's the problem is that you, you're you're so reliant on these two guys. And just two the guys. Other, the other nine are what 
I think, are what are allowing the uh, the opposing teams to keep it interesting. I mean, you should not have you should not have been holding on by the skin of your teeth exactly to beat Denver at the end of that game. Same with Seattle. Same with Seattle. I mean, both offenses are easily beatable, and especially you just, with Geno, and you especially with. A depleted uh, Denver offense. Yeah, like no wide receivers for him to use at all. Exactly. And Bridgewater coming off a concussion. He barely practiced the week before. Exactly. Like, with Geno Smith, if that was Russell Wilson and that's exactly how the game went, I think the tone is the complete opposite. It's what a performance from this defense. That you contained. Held them to 20 points. Yeah, you were up 14 0, but you knew Russell Wilson was going to come back. It's Geno Smith that. Doesn't allow us to, like the whole argument would be well they're super injured and they still did a really good job against Russell Wilson. Well now it's well they're super injured but the Seahawks had the biggest injury to deal with in that entire football game and they dealt with it swimmingly. Where you've had a couple weeks now to kind of figure out things with this defense with all the injuries on it mm-hmm. and it still seems to not be clicking in. I think when you've had a couple weeks and things are still looking the same, it's just a matter of talent and that the talent's just not there, especially on that defensive line with Tuit and Alawalu being out. Yeah, I mean, the conversations we've had all year long about Cam Hayward. He's a one-man defensive line right now. Being I, I, I the couldn't most have... targeted or the most focused or the most honed-on defensive player in the league right what now. What happens is... in that game if he's not there? They run for almost 200 yards, right? Like Probably. every team pretty much does. I mean, they don't get a, they don't get several tackles for loss from him. They don't get a sack from him. It, it is they're not doing a great job controlling the running game. The fact that they're 12th in the league, I think, is a testament to 97. I think they'd be in the 20s if he wasn't out there. I think they'd be giving up big plays on the ground 24/7 because they are still doing that. But it's just Hayward at least puts some stability mm-hmm. where it's not like you can use the whole line of scrimmage if you're the offense to run. you got to pick and choose There's your side away from him. some gap that yeah. isn't available to you. Exactly. I couldn't imagine where they'd be without him. Especially against Seattle. Because, yeah, uh, yeah you had the Javante Williams run against Denver, but James Pierre was able to slow that one down. That was really the only play you can think back to from that game that Denver really took advantage of your run defense. But the whole game, the whole second half was just a, a highlight reel for the Seattle run game, right? And without Cam Hayward there, we know that they only had, what, 30 rushing yards in, in the first half, something yeah. like that, 35, 34, and they eclipsed the 100-yard mark, I think, sometime less than halfway through the fourth quarter. So it's very easy, very easy to sit here and say that with no Cam Hayward, that number isn't just reaching over 100, but it's approaching 200. No question about that. Um, when you look at the defense, I, I don't think you can put defensive line in this equation because they're so injury-riddled. I think when they're healthy, they're one of the better units. More disappointing group of, of okay. players for you so far, the secondary or the inside linebackers? I'd say the, the inside linebackers. I think by far. Because as I said earlier, Cam Sutton – was an unproven starter. He, we didn't know if he was going to be capable of being the, the outside sideline guy, the, the actual number one or number two guy. James Pierre was an undrafted acquisition by this team just a year ago who you also had no idea exactly what you were going to, going to get out of him. And then Trey Nora was a seventh-round draft pick for you this year who you and I sat on this very show during training camp and said, I don't expect him to make the team. I think there are other guys more deserving at other positions where you have to free up space for them rather him in the secondary. 
and he's come up very clutch for you in, in certain moments over the past couple of weeks. It's, it's taken some time, but the fact that we're saying his name this much, this positively, through only six weeks is a very good sign from him. Uh, so for me, it has to be Devin Bush and Joe Schober, just because every time we've mentioned their names, it's been in the negative. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the secondary is an average secondary. I think when it's fully healthy and you don't have to have guys like Pierre or Lane or Norwood playing in expanded roles, I think it's very serviceable. When Sutton and Hayden are the two outside guys and Minka and Edmonds are your safeties, and you can kind of just throw in a trio of Norwood, Lane, and Pierre, I think it's a pretty serviceable secondary in the NFL, and I, I think they have been doing a fine job. I think their worst performances have come when Hayden and or Sutton have been out, which each has missed one game this season so far. Um, Minside linebackers just, you know, Joe Schobert was a big trade, at least was thought to be a big trade by Colbert heading into this season just a couple weeks before the season started. Has not really panned out like a lot of people had hoped he would. Uh, but I think the more disappointing part of that equation is number 55 because, sure, schobert has been to a Pro Bowl and you were hopeful that he might capture some of that Cleveland Browns form that he had in a bottle and be able to use it here in Pittsburgh and kind of have a little bit of a rebirth after uh, a year in Jacksonville, which he was the best player on that defense, which was just an abysmal defense. But with Devin Bush, that's a top 10 pick right there. That's a guy you moved up in the draft to pick, you know, in that class, it was all about the two Devons at inside linebacker, Devin White, Devin Bush. Devin White went before Devin Bush to the Buccaneers and has been an absolute stud. I mean, just one of the better young inside linebackers in the league, trending to being the top. He's trending to take the mantle over for a Wagner or a Keekly, I think. Uh, I don't think he's there yet, and I don't know if he'll get there, but at least he's trending that way, whereas Bush supposed to be trending towards that, and he's just kind of stuck in neutral again this year where – yeah, he's not making any egregiously bad plays or he doesn't look like he's a step slower than everybody else, but he needs to be a playmaker, and that's why you trade it up to pick him. You be a playmaker like Devin White's a playmaker, and you're not holding up that end of the, the bargain. No, you're not. And there, there are different levels of disappointment from these guys, right, because Joe Sherbert, as you had pointed out, was a, a former pro bowler. But he didn't come out of school with the pedigree that Devin Bush did. Plus, he's got a couple years of age where, whereas Devin Bush, spry out of coming out of Michigan, super fast, super athletic, ton of pedigree, tenth overall pick. There were different expectations for both of these guys, and both of them have not met that level of an expectation set. Even though the bar is different for both of them, it, it's still neither of them have reached their potential of what we thought they were capable of of achieving and which one is more disappointing i i really couldn't tell you i, I think it's Devin it's got to be bush just because of how much you invested in him i mean i know you'd made a trade for showbert so you had to send some capital but it wasn't much capital that you it sent wasn't a, a first a, a another first round pick that yeah you got one in return but you had to give up stuff you have to give up uh, additional capital for that one, but at least you got a first-round pick in return for Devin Bush in the form of Devin Bush. But, yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember who was there. I think the Steelers were at, like, 18 or something or 19 or something and maybe even 21 um, in the draft order that year. And so you move up a significant chunk of space in the draft 
And I don't know who would have been available at the time uh, around that area of which they were drafting, but maybe it was the right pick in hindsight regardless just because the guy you were going to get at that original position wasn't going to be any better for you than Devin Bush was or Devin Bush has been so far. But it, it has been absolutely a disappointing 2021 campaign for Devin Bush. Yeah, and, yeah, and maybe you wonder if he's still dealing with the knee, uh, rehabbing that knee, getting back to game shape. I've said thousands of times on these airwaves that you know, injuries like that knee injury for Bush, it's a two-year process to get over, one year to get over physically, and then another year to get over it mentally. So maybe he's trying to jump through those mental hurdles. You still see the explosiveness. I mean, when he scooped up the fumble on Sunday against Seattle, I mean, you saw he was shot out of a cannon when he picked it up. He just was shot out of a cannon the wrong way. And they had to finally like start pushing him towards the other end zone. And he went down, but the athleticism is there. And, and, you know, not to make this as an excuse, but it's a tough act to follow when you're the guy picked after a tragic injury happens to an all-pro caliber linebacker in Ryan Shazier, and then you're that guy. And and, and I know that people will sit out there and say, well, no one was saying he was going to be that guy. Yes, they were. When they traded up to make that pick, all the he got was the comparisons was right. that Shazier, that's their new Shazier. It's the, it's the speed, it's the athleticism, and that is it's just, the tackling ability. That's way too much expectation it's to throw on a rookie. Right. And we saw we we thought in twenty eighteen or in twenty nineteen he was on his way to that Shazier level. Now, granted, Shazier was phenomenal and I don't know if even a fully capable Devin Bush could ever reach the potential. He that stays healthy. He's probably the Bobby Wagner of the league right now. Shazier. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, he's beyond Bobby right. Wagner. He's the best. Bobby Wagner is now a little bit older. But I'm Shazier, saying Shazier absolutely. He would have taken that mantle. You know, as you, the were, best. you were saying Luke Keekley and Bobby Wagner. He would have been next in right up, and, it, and it, it was happening that year in 2017. He was on pace to be Defensive Player of the Year that year. He was on pace to be first team All Pro. I don't know who won it. Probably Aaron Donald won it. So. Or Watt, to, or TJ, or JJ Watt. Tough to say who won it. But he was on pace. He, won it, he was on pace. He was absolutely having not. I, I can't even call it a breakout year, Tom, because it felt like every year he was breaking out, improving, not just bit by bit, but by a significant margin. And this year was just a, the 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 next year after he had done it for the past four years of his career, and so it was impossible to ignore. And I I don't know if he made the Pro Bowl or the All Pro team, but that injury against Cincinnati came very late. It came in December of that season. So I'd be hard-pressed to say that he wasn't deserving of it, even though he was out for the, the remainder of the season. And I'm sure that's, that had a determining factor of him not being named to an all-pro team or him not being named to a Pro Bowl team. But without a doubt, the, the, the standard for the inside linebacker, if he never got injured, is Ryan Shazier. And there's no doubt that Devin Bush is is not on this team because there was no need for him right. if Ryan Shazier stayed healthy. And maybe Ryan and Devin Bush can get to some level of elite play still. He's still super young, but my problem is the the the, the, the optimism is fleeting. Is what the I'm progression saying. you saw out of Ryan Shazier, you're not seeing out of Devin Bush. No, like I said, I think you're kind of seeing him stuck in neutral. One last little thought before we wrap this episode up, T.J. Watt your Week 6 Defensive Player of the Week for the AFC. I don't know who else you would have picked. I don't know. There's nothing else you could say to me that would that would Im- Im- impose a more impressive 
stat line than TJ. Can you and take, then just impact as well. Just randomly, can you take a guess who the offensive player of the week was? Um, was it the he, guy who ran for 140 yards, three touchdowns for like the fifth consecutive game? He wears a crown. Yeah. yeah. King Henry, offensive player of the week. Matthew Wright, our old buddy. Our old well, Special teams player of the week for winning it for Herbs and the Jags. Where is he from? York, PA, Lancaster, I PA, can't remember, something? but I remember him kicking for the Steelers last year for a little bit. Local Kicking kid. game winners for Herbs, local, getting Urban Meyer's first win. I told my friend, just a local kid who's now an international superstar. Oh, I love Ray. it. Urban Meyer's favorite person in the world. Matthew London's Ray. favorite person in the world. Look at London. They got a great. They got a great ending because of him. That'll do it for this episode of the Steelers Standard. Thanks as always for checking us out. Later episode this week, we'll do the offense and talk about their status report halfway through the season. Well, halfway kinda through the season as the Steelers enter their bye week. For Jacob Recht, I'm Tom Opperman. Thanks, as always, for giving us a listen, and we'll talk to you next time on the Steelers Standard.